Let's, uh, let's pray. We'll get right into it, guys. Lord, we uh, thank you for this day. We thank you uh, that you got us here uh, together. Um, a new month in April, and we look forward to uh, just coming Easter next week. And Lord, just a joy thinking about your resurrection. Help us to have that mindset, um, Lord, that you did resurrect like you said you would, and you will return like you said you're going to. And so we look forward to that, and we pray that you bless this time. Holy Spirit, convict us today, work in our hearts. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1647, Massachusetts passed the Old Deluder Satan Act. So the Puritans, they valued literacy highly. They believed all individuals should be able to read and interpret the Bible for themselves. And so this act stated its intention was to stop the old deluder Satan and his goal to keep men from the knowledge of the scriptures. And so this law, it required every town with 50 or more families to hire and maintain a teacher to instruct all of the children in reading and writing. And so we live in this world of deception with false religions. We can easily start to drift away from the truth if we're not careful. Even in the church, false teachers can come and creep in and try to make you believe uh, false doctrine, believe in lies. And so we need to stand firm on the truth. And the only way of not being deceived is if we're devoted to our Lord and his word. So we need to stop the deception and start the devotion. James is going to give us many truths about God after he taught us how God doesn't tempt anyone and isn't tempted by evil. He showed us what the true ten, uh, source of temptation was last week, right? That was us, not God. And so today we're going to learn about who the source of grace is. Okay, so the outline for today, um, we're going to recap like we always do. Look at verse 16, our Greek word of the week. Then we're going to jump into verses 17 and 18 with that question of the week. Have some applications and yes, our quiz. So let's recap and you guys are going to help me out. Uh, from last week, right? So we had one command, two reasons, three steps, four applications. Who remembers that one command regarding a foolish statement? And uh, what was it? What was the command James said? Does anyone remember last week? Do not, do not what? Do not say this. What aren't you supposed to say? Yeah. I am being tempted by God. So we looked at that command and we said it's foolish. And why did James say it was foolish? Two reasons. Does anyone remember the first reason? Why is it foolish to say I'm being tempted by God? Yes. Yep. The first verse says uh, in verse 13. Uh, that's the second one. He himself doesn't tempt anyone. And then the first reason was God is inexperienced with evil, right? He um, he can't be tempted by evil. And then we had three steps. Uh, John, last week, he said it, one, two, three. Who's got it this week? One, two, three. What are the three steps to sinful temptation? The first step is you have this desire, and then that leads to, and then, yeah, so desire, sin, death, or desire, depravity, death. Then we looked at the four applications, and they're a bit long, so I'll remind you. The first one is about that blame game, right? Stop playing the blame game and remember who took the blame for you. 
The second one is God's goodness should cause us to befriend God and magnify him. The third one was similar to the first, right? Stop playing the blame game and take responsibility for your decisions and actions. And then lastly, human depravity should cause us to beg God for mercy, right? We looked at how sinful we were last week. So now we're going to get into verse 16. So if you have your Bibles, James chapter 1, verse 16, a very short verse, but it has so much to unpack. So let's look at verse 16. Let's read. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. All right. So we have a simple verse, but I want us to look at four things. First, the negative command. Second, the positive concern. Then that key word there, deceived. And lastly, we're going to see that this is a bridge verse, right? I don't know if you go on Brooklyn Bridge or Manhattan Bridge, George Washington Bridge with those tolls. You go over bridges. We're going to see that this is a bridge verse. I'll explain. So let's look at first the negative command here. Again, just like last week, James in verse 13 said, do not, right, or let no one say. Here, it's not focused mainly on what we're saying, our speech. Here, it's more about our heart, our mind. Do not be deceived. And so James doesn't want any of his beloved brothers to be deceived or led astray. So he tells them straight up, stop being deceived. This is probably in reference to the preceding verses. So he might be saying, stop being deceived in your thinking that you're not the source of temptation. Or stop being deceived in your thinking that God tempts us to sin. And so their misinterpretation of temptation can lead them to be misled. If it's mainly about the verses that follow, though, James is calling us to beware when we cast suspicion on God and his good deeds, right? If we look at verses 17 and 18, um, this could be James' warning before he goes on to tell more truth, right? Don't be deceived, and then he's going to say, all right, this is what you need to believe. So last week we looked at those two reasons why God uh, doesn't tempt anyone this week we're going to focus mainly on three things that God is involved with, right? He's not involved with evil, but he is involved with these three things in verses 17 to 18. And last week, like I said, we looked at the source of temptation. This week is the source of grace. And so the negative command, it had a key word in it. It said, do not be deceived, right? Our Greek word of the week, planeo. Now, this word deceived can also be translated to be misled or led astray. It's in the passive tense. So the idea is that you're letting yourself be misled. So this is the first time the word deceived is in the book of James. But we know that this is a major theme in the book, right? False faith versus fake faith. Are you a genuine Christian? And so James is saying, don't be deceived. And so James, if you know, um, the main thesis in verses 26 and 27, he's going to say, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. And how does he end the book of James? He says, my brethren, if anyone among you strays from the truth. And so this is a very important concept that he's, he wants us to get. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Because it is possible to fall into this temptation of thinking foolishly about biblical doctrine or even forgetting the gospel, right? It's, there's nothing more scarier than a Christian straying away from the truth. 
Just picture a child when they maybe get lost at uh, Target, right? What, what's happening? They can't find their parents, right? They're straying away from their parents. And so the security guard notices, oh, man, this child is alone, maybe crying a little bit, in need of help. And so those who stray from the truth need to be brought back to the safety of their parents. But for us as believers, the safety of the truth, the safety of God's word. But the big question is, how do we stop the deception? All right, and, and we'll answer that question, but I want to hear from you guys. How are we going to stop this deception? What do you guys think? Of being deceived, of forgetting the gospel, of getting it wrong. How do we stop it? Yes, reading God's word and being familiar with it. That is exactly the 100% answer. So why don't you go to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, a couple books to your left here. Chapter 3, verse 12. All right, so we begin with our context of persecution. It says here in verse 12, 2 Timothy 3. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse. Look, that's our key word. Deceiving and being deceived. Now, how do we stop deception? You, however, continue in the things you have learned. Become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them. That from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And here it is. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. There you go. We need the scripture. There's no other way. The more you are in the word, the least likely you are of being deceived. The more you sit under the teaching of God's word, the more likely you will not be led astray. And so a good question to ask is, how's your church attendance lately? There's a reason why pastors want to see more faithfulness to the local church, because they don't want you to be led astray by the world's false thinking. All right? And this leads us to our next point, a positive concern, right? I really like this about James. Um, if you go back to James 1, he says what? My beloved Brethren. And so James, he has this pastoral heart, right? He loves his brothers and sisters in Christ, and he uses this personal pronoun. He says, These are his beloved brethren. This is his family. He cares for them, they care for him. Some of us might emphasize this word, my, when we introduce our wives. We say, This is my wife. Think about it like that. These are my brothers. We are part of the same team, the same body of Christ. And so they're loved by James, but most importantly, who are they loved by? They're loved by Jesus. They're loved by God. And so you can sense this level of James' concern from verses 2, right? What does he say there? Consider it all joy, my brothers or my brethren. Here, it goes up a step. He says, not just my brethren, he says, my beloved brethren, right? He has this deep concern from them. He truly wants what's best for them. And so we see this phrase, beloved brethren, a couple times. In verse 19, if you look at verse 19, it says, This you know, my beloved brethren. Chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Listen, my beloved brethren. So he doesn't always say beloved brethren. Sometimes he says just brethren. But I like in verse 19, he says here, how we can avoid uh, being deceived. Right? He says, by this you already know. And he's going to list a bunch of things about the truth. Right? especially the word of God um, in verse 21. So we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But for now, I want us to look at 
how this ver uh, verse is a bridge verse, right? So verse 16, right? You picture this bridge here, right? Imaginary, but it's there. I want you to picture sin city on the left. Sin city, right? These are verses about sinful temptation, verses 13 to 15. And then on the right, I want you to picture God's city, verses 17 to 18, which we'll get into in a little bit. And that's really about God's grace, okay? And now we have verse 16, right, right in between, and it's acting like a bridge because it connects the passages together and it could be possible to go in either direction, okay? And so James is like, he's crossing this bridge. He just left the sinful temptation discussion, but it's still connected to what he's about to say. And he's going to explain how God is gracious, right? He shows us more of the beauty of God and how there's no way he tempts us, right? In verse 13, he gave us those negative examples. And now we're going to see in verses 17 to 18, the positive examples. Um, and so before we jump into those verses, I want us to consider some applications from verse 16 alone, right? So the first one, the first one is, are you starting to drift away from the truth? It can happen to anyone, even a pastor. We can't think, it can't happen to me. What about Solomon, right? What happened in his later years? His heart was turned away from the Lord. 1 Kings eleven fourteen says, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away from other gods, and his heart was not uh, wholly devoted to the Lord his God. I remember in college when I started living for Christ, I was very prideful, and I, I didn't think I was going to fall in certain sins. And I deceived myself. I fell big time. You see, pride truly comes before the fall. I, I, I need to be honest with my, myself and say, man, I, even I could be led astray, right? We could all be led astray by foolish thinking. So we need to be careful. And So you ask yourself that question. Are you starting to drift from the truth? Number two, we need to stop the deception. How? By reading the word. Just like Victor said, we need to be in that word, saturated with the word of God like James was, right? Maybe meditate on the Sermon on the Mount this week and the following weeks. So much to chew on there. We go to church as much as we can. We don't want to risk being deceived. And so we see that our brothers in Christ, they love us, right? We learned that from James um, and how important it is uh, to be faithful to God's word. So a, a good question for those of us that maybe we are going to church, maybe we are in the word daily is, do we love our brothers, right? So much that we will do anything to stop them from being deceived, from them going away from the truth. Are we concerned for those who are straying, right? That would be a good question for us. All right, let's jump into our next verses here, uh, verses 17 to 18. So if you got James chapter one, let's read verses 17 to 18 here. It says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we will be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. And so we observe here many reasons to be devoted to God. I want us to notice God's perfection his plan, and his purpose. And then we're going to touch upon the doctrine of salvation and one of God's incommunicable attributes, okay? So let's uh, dive right into it in verse 17 about God's perfection. It's clearly observed here in verse 17. We read that he is the giver of all good things. So 
We could easily jump over this word good, but it shows us that God is good. And good can only come from him who is good. So we see here that God is the source of everything good. And goodness, it doesn't come from below. It doesn't come from earth. It comes from above, right? And so this refutes those who think, well, I'm a good person. Or, yeah, there's so much good in the world. Well, you got to remember scripture. Romans 3.10 says, no one is good. No, not one. And no one is perfect like our God. I mean, the word good is moral excellent. And we've all sinned and fallen short of that. And so who really is moral excellent? It's God alone. Um, and so we need to understand that if there's anything good in us, it's from God, all right? And if it wasn't for God's restraint and, God, and the God-given conscience that we have, our human depravity would run wild, right? We were looking this Wednesday at the end times, and uh, Pastor Nathan was going and, and using this verse, Matthew 24, 12, and he said, most people's love will grow cold at the end. And so really, if it wasn't for God's goodness, we might be all killing each other type stuff. So we need to remember, if there's anything good in us, it's from God. Another way we observe God's perfection is in his gracious giving, right? The text says here, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, right? Every perfect gift. That word perfect there, we saw that um, earlier in the book of James. Um, let, your, uh, let your endurance have its perfect work in you. Right? So the key word there is about completion, and God is doing not just giving you a percentage of what you need. He gives you uh, perfectly what you need, completely what you need. Um, also, we saw in James uh, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 5, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach. Right? So God is in the business of giving good things. He can only give good things. Where do we see that? Matthew 7. Let's go there briefly. Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount. Like I said, I think James is like in the Sermon on the Mount morning and afternoon when he lived on earth. Look at James, uh, Matthew 7, verse 9. It says, Or what man is there among you who when his son acts for a loaf will give him a stone? Or if he acts for a fish, will he, not give a, uh, will he give him a snake, will he? And then look at verse 11. If you then be an evil, right, talking about humans, right, clearly, you know, we're not good. Know how to give good gifts. Those that aren't good still know how to give good gifts to your children. Maybe some selfish motive there, who knows. How much more will your Father, this is talking about God, our Heavenly Father, who is in the heaven, give what is good to those who acts him. All right, so here we have... God uh, motivating us to pray, right, to acts, and you shall receive all that. Uh, but we see that he is the giver of all good things. You can go back to James. And so the perfect God gives perfectly. In the context of the book of James, we can imply that God gives us the strength and wisdom we need in trials. The next thing we see in verse 17, I have a picture here. Um, I'll, I'll say what it is in a second that he is the creator of lights, right? The text says father of lights. This means that he has authority uh, over all creation, okay? So specifically, um, what we're talking about here as, as the father of lights is all the stars in our universe. How, 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 many, does it, how many stars are there? Does anyone know? Plenty. But what did they say? Billions? Wow. I'm sure they're finding new stars every day, right? In just one galaxy, okay. He is the father of all of those lights, right? He is 
I'm in control of all of those lights. And our God, he is greater than the sun, the moon, and all the stars. He is the one that placed them where they had to go. And he placed them perfectly, not by random chance. So I want to hear from you. What are some examples of God's hand upon our universe that refutes atheism? What are some examples? We mentioned God created the stars, all that. Um, what would you argue? Oh, give me one example that you see, maybe in creation or, or anywhere, um, that, man, this had to be intelligent. Uh, it had to be from God. It had to require intelligence. Say it again. The order, yes, yes. I mean, everything's orderly. Uh, it could be, I don't know how much miles, maybe 100 miles if the sun or the earth were not in its place. It would be too cold or too um, warm to live. Anyone else? Yeah. Yes, it is very beautiful, this world. Um, beauty points to a beautiful creator. Good. It's not random, right? Anyone else? Anyone else? Yeah. Mm. Gravity, good example. What about our DNA? Has anyone ever looked into the DNA stuff? That's with the microscope and all that. Very cool stuff. What about um, the animals, right? Where did all that come from? Simple question. The trees, right? How to have a beginning. So we observe God's perfection also in the fact that he is unchangeable. So we're going to talk about God's immutability in a second here. What does James say? There's no variation or shifting shadow in God. And variation implies that there is a change. Shifting shadow, it pictures a turn of events. God doesn't shift or turn like a shadow based on the earth's rotation of the sun. And so the earth is moved, but God is not moved. In God's light, he has no change. It never dims. Maybe you have a laptop and it goes on low battery. Um, that's not God, right? Maybe you have a light bulb that's flickering and then... Oh, I got to buy a new light bulb. That's not God. His light never dims. And so the suns, we know, uh, you, those that like science, right, they change. The stars change. What do you call a star that blows up? Uh-oh. Does anyone remember what a star that blows up? Supernova. That's going to be in your quiz. Hint, hint. So his goodness doesn't change. He will always be good. And that's good news. Right? We can rejoice in this truth. We do not have to question his goodness. Good gifts will keep coming from the source of all things good. All right. So like I mentioned, his immutability here, that's just a big word for God's unchangeableness. It's an incommunicable attribute. So that means he does not share this attribute with humans. For example, a communicable attribute is his love. Right. Of course, we will... Never love the way God loves us, right? He loved us to death, took the wrap upon himself. We're learning uh, this in, on Sunday. Um, but we can still love, right? Humans can still love one another, our wives, our children. So that's communicable. But an example of incommunicable attribute is, let's say, his eternality, right? God has always existed. We've had a beginning, right? We were born. God, he is the beginning, right? Um, and so God's immutability also falls in this category, and there's plenty of other ones. Um, and so we've changed over time, right, as humans, but God has never changed. And there are many verses about this. 
Uh, Hebrews 13.8, right? Jesus is, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Malachi 3.6, the Lord doesn't change. But I want us to look at Psalm 102. So go to Psalm 102. I think this verse will uh, make it very clear to us that God doesn't change. In a couple weeks during our uh, Wednesday question discussion time in the book of James, I think we should dive into this a little bit more. Because uh, there are many verses and people can make arguments and say, well, what about this? But anyway, Psalm 102, look at verse 25. It says here, Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And of all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed. And here's our key. But you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. All right? So it's refreshing to know this about God. He never changes so we can trust in him. All right, so let's talk about God's plan now. Talked about his perfection. Let's talk about his plan. In verse 18, if you go back to verse 18 in James, what do we see there? It says, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And so here we have God's perfect will, right? He planned to do something amazing in his creation. And we do not believe in uh, deism, right? Where it says that God just lets the world do whatever it wants. You know, he created it and then you could choose to what, uh, do what you want. No, God is active in his creation, right? He has a, a will, and, and, and his will was what? To save a people for himself. And so we call these people the church or the bride of Christ. So God chose to bring his people forth by the word of truth. Now this word, word of truth here, um, you can look at Ephesians 1.13, Colossians 1.5. It's, it's talking mainly about the gospel. Uh, but just look at James 1.21. Look what it says there. It says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. All right? And so we have here the word of truth. That is what we need to stop the deception of uh, falsehood. We need the word of truth. And that is what God used uh, to save us. Right? Many commentators here argue this word of truth is talking about the gospel. Now, another um, point that we have to make here is the word brought forth, right? So if you see in verse 18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. That was the same word that was used in verse 15 about sin, right? Brought forth what? Death. Yeah, and so here it's used in a positive manner. And so there could be a possible contrast. It could be over there was human Desire and how sinful it is, it brings forth death. Here we see in the positive example, God brought forth life, right? By giving us the word of truth. And so it's because of God we can be born again. Another way of saying that is that God chose to regenerate his people or make us into a new creature by the gospel. Now if you know a thing or two about special revelation... We know that God had to bring us the gospel in order for us to be saved. Romans 10, 17 says that so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We need that word in order for us to be saved. Another thing I want to mention is that God's plan is orderly, right? And so we can see this more clearly in the doctrine of salvation. 
Uh, we already mentioned uh, the, you know, one part of God's plan in salvation. It was regeneration. But does anyone know the first part of God's plan of salvation? Starts with an E. Yes, election. Very good, very good. And so the Bible tells us that God chose us um, in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.5. That's known as election. And before creation, because of his sovereign good pleasure, God chooses some people to be saved. And if we continue this order of salvation or order salutis, uh, we have something that comes next after election. That's the gospel call, okay? The gospel call is God summons people to himself through the human proclamation of the gospel so we can respond in saving faith. And then, we already looked at regeneration, right? He brought us forth by the word of truth. There it is, regeneration, right? We are born again. He imparts spiritual life to those who have been called. If you look at Romans 8.3, we see that uh, golden chain of salvation, right? Uh, first, we are called then we are justified, and then we're glorified. And, and so uh, if we continue this order of salvation, it's election, calling, regeneration, and then pretty much all happens at the same time, conversion, justification, adoption, right? And then if you look up here, we have sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. When you get saved, you start this life process of sanctification, being more and more into the image of Christ, and you're going to persevere to the end by God's grace. And, of course, you're going to be glorified with that crown of life which we spoke about last week. And so God's plan was to elect a people, bring the gospel to them, regenerate them, and convert them. That is a beautiful sequence. We get to be a part of God's plan of salvation, unworthy sinners like us. But what is the purpose of God's saving work in us what is the purpose we're going to look at that but i want you guys to answer that question why why are we saved why what's the point not just to be saved from hell why were we saved in order to do what fellowship with god glorify god eternal life okay we kind of read about it in first peter during our communion does anyone remember to not live for sin, but to live for righteousness, right? To die to sin. And so look at the middle of verse uh, 18. We have a so that statement in James 1. It says, in the exercise of, a, of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that, here it is, here's the purpose, so that you would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. All right? And so James explains to us why we're saved. God's purpose in salvation is that we would be a kind of first fruits. Now this word first fruits, it implies that others will be saved and that we are the first to be redeemed of God's creation. We are the first installment of God's redemption of all creation. So he doesn't tempt us, he saves us from our temptation and we ought to be grateful we are not saved to be a Christian that stays home and complains about the world. We are saved to be instruments in God's hand. What did he tell Paul? He is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and the sons of Israel. And then what does Paul say in Romans 6.13? Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, 
But present yourselves to God as those alive from dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And so we live for God as redeemed people. Like Evan said, we glorify God and not uh, feed into our sinful pleasures. Another verse that illustrates us being created and saved by God to do good works is Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. So go to Ephesians 2. We're just going to look at um, the last verse, verse 10. We're saved by grace, right? Alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We know that it's not of our works. It is a gift. But look at verse 10. What's the point of our salvation? What's the purpose? Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus uh, for good works. So here we have it. Believers were created with a purpose, and that purpose is for good works, to give glory to God. As first fruits, we are tasked with this ministry of sharing the gospel to all. For 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. As through God, we're making an appeal through us. We beg on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. All right. Uh, I know we're running out of time, so we're going to be very brief here. Uh, our question of the week is in Romans 8, verses 9, 19 to 23. You don't have to go there. I'll, I'll explain. Um, the big question for us is, what do we have to look forward to as Christians, right? And so if you read Romans 8, 19 to 23, we can ask this, this question. Are we eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body? Are we really looking forward to having a body that can no longer sin? Do we groan like the rest of creation? Do we long to see the day when all things are redeemed? Our salvation is just a picture of that beautiful, great day of redemption, right? We are the first fruits right now. And so let me end with the applications here uh, since we got to hurry it up. First one, are you starting to draw closer to the truth, right? The first one was, are you straying away from the truth here? Where are you starting to get closer to the truth? Because the truth of God's grace that we learned today should cause us to draw closer to him. Are you thankful for everything God has given us? Are you devoted to the God who never changes, to the God who brought the gospel to us, and to the God who changed your heart? Number two, we need to start being devoted to God by obeying his word, right? The first one was, how do we not be deceived? We need to read the word. Here, to be devoted, you need to be uh, obeying the word, right? Just Not just hearing it, but obeying it. And so, are you reaching out to others with that same gospel that God used to save you. In conclusion, I think we need a new deluders act, right? We know Satan, he is uh, uh, roaring, lying, prowling, looking to cause many to be deceived, many to be devoured by false teaching. But how would this new deluders act look like today? Could it be as simple as being believers who obey the word and being wise in a world of war for wealth. That means we should be reading the word daily, going to church as much as we can to be under the faithful preaching of God's word. And so may we seek to stop the deception of foolish thinking and unbiblical doctrine and start the devotion to the God who never changes, who gives graciously, who created all things, and who saved us so we can be a light in this dark world. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time. We thank you that you are so good and you are the source of grace. Lord, if there's anything good in us, it's you. And Lord, thank you for humbling us, reminding us of this truth. Work in us, Lord, 
to be people that read your word and obey your word. Uh, such a simple thing you call us to do, yet so many times we lack in it. And Lord, help us as well in our church attendance, Lord, that we may not be deceived. Um, help us, Lord, to uh, love you more and more each day. We pray in Jesus.